Thank you that uh, we're free tonight and we have liberty. A lot of folks don't have that. They're studying the Bible in different places around the world, and uh, they're not even sure they'll finish their study without being disrupted. I saw some pictures this week of uh, some Coptic Christians who were killed at church and gunned down. We take these things for granted, but they're gifts from your hand. You've been so gracious to us. You've been so good to us. You've been kind to us in this nation. We have so much. We get concerned because we see this nation deteriorating. And we see it uh, falling apart from the inside. This is what happens to great nations. It's what happens historically to great nations. And it grieves us and it concerns us. And so we pray for our nation and we pray for our leaders. We pray for President Bush who's under unbelievable attack. We pray that you would give him great wisdom, facing some huge issues. Uh, None of us would want to be in that office with that pressure. But he's there, and he's there because you've appointed him there. And we pray that you would give him godly counsel, that he would heed it, that he would listen to it, that the critics wouldn't wouldn't weigh him down. Thank you that he uh, begins his day Uh, with your word and seeks your mind and your face and we're grateful for that so he's not a perfect man none of us are as well we're just men we're just dust we're we're deeply flawed but we all have in common is that we need you for whatever office you have put us in for whatever responsibility you have given to us quite frankly we don't have what it takes we have gifts and we have strengths But our greatest gifts and our greatest strengths can be our greatest enemies because we get proud about them and we lean too heavily upon them instead of upon you. So wherever it is you have placed us in life, Lord, we we pray that we'll never lose the sense of, of our need of you and our dependency upon you. We need great wisdom in our responsibilities that are before us as men in our work, with our families, in our personal lives and integrity. We want Jesus to be Lord of our lives, and we want to honor him and how we live. We want our lives to be different from those uh, who don't know you. We would pray that your spirit would be working in such a way that we would be yielding to him and to your word so that the fruit of your spirit might come out in our lives. And that uh, those who don't know Christ, there would be an aroma uh, that to some would lead to life. And we know that same aroma, Paul told us, to others will lead to death. But it's the aroma of Christ, and uh, we're not cognizant of it as we go about our business every day. But uh, we pray that it would be there and that it would be very, very uh, real and pure uh, as we follow you in our lives. That, uh, our, our walk with you, Lord, we're trusting you to even, e- even give us what we need. You, you had to save us from our sins. We couldn't save ourselves. And Lord, even as we're walking with you, we, we, we depend on grace every day and every moment of our lives. It's all of grace and it's all of you. So we honor you tonight. We pray that we'll be encouraged tonight. Will be, will, that we will be reminded of great truths that are at work in our lives that sometimes we're not cognizant of, that we're not aware of at times. Uh, 
But these are truths that set us free. These are truths that keep us going. So we would ask you to uh, instruct us uh, by your spirit. Give us precisely what we need, each guy tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn to the, uh, the book of Jonah. We, we finished up our study on, on Joseph. And really what we saw in Joseph's life you can't help but see the providence of God in Joseph's life. And, and we've, as we've been doing Joseph, we, we have been kind of focusing and majoring on the, on the providence of God. Uh, there are some sections of Scripture where the providence of God just stands out. You just can't miss it. Another section of Scripture where the providence of God would be so strong would be uh, the book of Esther. Uh, we have been talking about the fact that the providence of God is in many ways a missing doctrine in the church today. It, 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 in the 20th century and in the 21st century, uh, it, it's a doctrine that uh, sadly has been forgotten. We have become so man-centered in the evangelical church. We have become so um, uh, uh, focused on, on men. When Luther was, uh, Martin Luther was, uh, debating and corresponding with Erasmus. At one point, he said to Erasmus, he said, Erasmus, your God is too human. Our God is not human. Uh, now, Jesus is the God-man. But in, in, in reference to the essence of who God is, God is not like us. Uh, God, is, uh, God is incomprehensible, yet knowable. And aren't you glad that he's there? And aren't you glad that he's in charge? Are you in Jonah? Well, flip over to Psalm 135. We'll get to Jonah, but we'll start in Psalm 135 tonight. Uh, Psalm 135 has a couple of verses that just kind of kick us off tonight. Familiar words. Verse 5. The psalmist says, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Every other god is a false god in this culture, in this world. And there are a lot of gods, and we're hearing about a lot of gods. I mean, everything that's going on in this, uh, in this world, everything that's going on in the paper, everything that's going on, it's about gods. What gods? Everybody's serving some kind of god. So we're back to historically what's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, basically, this whole thing with the, with, with the Muslims kind of faded out for how many decades? But now we're back into it, and we're back into it big time. Uh, they've got a God, we've got a God. The psalmist says, our Lord is above all gods. Now catch this, whatever the Lord pleases... He does. And then he goes on and says, in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. Uh, kind of reminds you of uh, Psalm 139. Since we're so close to it, let's flip over there. Verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? 
Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, you get up early, you see the sun come up. But before you see the sun, you see the first rays of the sun. Uh, Now, light travels at what speed? 186,000 miles per second, right? All right, so think about that. If you could take the wings of the dawn, if you could capture, if you could get on one of those rays of light, harness that sucker and saddle up on it, and take the wings of the dawn, you'd be going 186,000 miles per second. And you could ride that thing for two hours, and wherever you went to, God would be there. You could ride it all day, and God would be there. You could ride it from here to Christmas, and get off, and God would be there. There is nowhere where God is not, because God is bigger. Doing the universe and solar systems, that's nothing. That's nothing. God's beyond that. God's bigger than all that. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. Well, we'll stop there. Uh, God is big. God is good. Psalm 119.68, the Lord is good and does good. When someone is this big and someone is this great and someone is this powerful, you, you, you want to hope for the best that their, their character can handle the power. We're watching Iran and we're watching this uh, president of Iran, this, this new little wuss over there. And, uh, and it, it's interesting, I've been reading some reports this week that they're, they're starting to think this guy is part of a kind of an obscure even among Islam, kind of an obscure cult of Islam that thinks that their responsibility is to bring about a cataclysm that's going to set in motion some events that will eventually uh, result in the extermination of Israel. But for a guy to actually believe who has that kind of power, that it's his responsibility to bring about a cataclysmic event, now that can be a little frightening. Unless your God is above all gods, and your God does whatever he pleases. When we talk about the providence of God, as we've been doing with Joseph, uh, we've mentioned this several times. If you've been with us, uh, what do we say? Uh, Repetition is the mother of learning. This is how you get this stuff. Uh, Providence basically is the concept that that which God creates God sustains. That which God creates, God keeps going. We talk about God's plan for the ages. I remember as a kid, you know, hearing about going to church and hearing the preacher talk about God's plan for the ages. And he's got a plan. I mean, you know, we believe in this book. I was driving over here and I was listening to Chuck and he was doing a thing on the Bible and what it is and why we believe it and well, part of the thing about the Bible is it's just, full of, it's just full of prophecy. And we know the prophecies that were fulfilled when Jesus came the first time. Well, the only way prophecy ever gets fulfilled is if you've got a God of providence, a God who's in absolute control, a God who can sustain what he creates, a God who can provide for what he creates. So is there a great plan of the ages? Absolutely. 
And it's going to happen. It's all going to happen according to schedule. Why? Because he is in charge and he is control. He's in control. And, and he is above all gods. He has the power to pull it off. And he has the power to keep it going and to keep his time frame absolutely on schedule. And things to us which look like setbacks and defeats and disappointments and all that, that's all part of the plan that he set in motion from before the foundations of the world. And it's all going to culminate on the right day in history. It's pretty wild stuff. And somehow we're all part of that. Uh, Your life, my life, our plans, our hopes, our dreams, uh, our mission statements, what we want to do. You guys have uh, day timers. You have um, those little electric things. What do you call those things? PDAs, yeah. Some of you guys have those. Um, yeah, we've got plans, we've got goals, we've got objectives. Uh, as you're in Psalm 139, flip over to uh, Proverbs 16. We're eventually going to make our way to Jonah. We're actually moving that direction. So God has made us, he's made you, he's made me. If we had gone further in Psalm 139, it would have said, and I'm on my way to Proverbs 16, but in Psalm 139 it would have said, Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, back when we were in the womb. And in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Isn't that amazing? So all the days of our lives are set before we're born. So God knew the moment of my conception, the moment of my birth. He's already determined the moment of my death. Hebrews says it's appointed for a man once to die, and then comes judgment. Um, And then what happens? So we die. Well, Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You see, that's promotion. But until that day of promotion comes, he is going to uh, providence us, and he's going to take care of us, and he's going to provide for us. Um, now, he's made us, we have our wills, we have our plans, we have our hopes, we have our dreams, we have our aspirations, every guy in this room. We all, all have things that we're hoping for in life and things we're sketching out. And you, you know, Every guy would have his objectives and goals and dreams and all that stuff, and that's good stuff. Proverbs 16, uh, verse 9. We're going to see this tonight in Jonah. The mind of man plans his way. But the Lord directs his steps. We we have plans. We have dreams. At times we think we know best. And uh, sometimes we're in tune with God's will. And sometimes we're out of sync with God's will. And sometimes we're flat out in rebellion to God's will. Even when we are in rebellion to God's will... God's will is going to get done, and it's going to get accomplished. Aren't you glad of that? I I look back on my life, and I see a lot of stupidity. You know, there are different spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. I think think that's one I was given. I remember back in in, uh, the 70s, there were a lot of spirit. You know, Christians go through trends like everybody else. And back in the 70s, one of the big things was spiritual gifts, knowing your gifts. and So you could go to different conferences, and there was some great material on how to know your spiritual gift. And, you know, it was, 
And, you know, and, and as usual, you got people all over the map. Oh, you know, there aren't gifts today. There are no spiritual gifts. And then, you, oh, there are spiritual gifts. And then those guys have fist fights in the parking lot. I mean, it was great to watch. And in the name of Christ, of course, they, they would fight. But I went to a couple different seminars because I was, you know, I'm a young guy in my early 20s, and I wanted to know my spiritual gift. I was interested in that. And I went one weekend and got about 12 hours with information in this huge notebook. And then a few weeks later, I went to another seminar and got another notebook. And I mean, just all this material. And, you know, for several weeks, I'm trying to, trying to debrief. What's my spiritual gift? And it seemed like you could boil it down to this. They, they, here's what it came down to. Um, your spiritual gift, it's, it's something that you uh, uh, have a proclivity for. It's, it's something you are motivated towards. It's something that you're drawn to do. And that's the first thing. And then secondly, in other words, you're good at it. And then secondly, other people see it and notice it and point it out to you. So some you're good at, other people notice it point it out. You know what I came up with? I, I, what it, it seemed to me my gift was sin. <laughs> That was the first thing that came to my mind. Because I'm good at it, I don't really need to um, practice it. It just kind of comes, and other people would notice it and point it out to me. Gosh, you're really impatient. Oh, thank you. It's, it's a gift I've been given. You have the same gift of sin. And when Christ comes into our lives and the Spirit of God takes residence in our lives, uh, sin is not eradicated it is no longer our master, and we're no longer a slave to sin, but it's still there. And someone has said that uh, before we come to Christ, sin is this huge monster like the Incredible Hulk that's in our lives and uh, dominates our lives. And we're, we, we've got to submit, and we've got to bow, and we've got to do what they say, and you know, we're intimidated. When Christ comes into our life, that Incredible Hulk becomes a... An emaciated, uh, sick, old man with an IV in his arm in a wheelchair. Not real intimidating. But from that point on, after Christ comes into our lives, we've got to decide, so, so is the man still there? Yeah. Is he as powerful as he once was? No. But see, he's still around, and what we've got to decide every day as believers is simply this. Am I going to feed that guy or not? Am I going to feed him or am I going to starve him? You know, Romans talks about if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And by the Spirit you'll live. John, John Owen used to talk about, uh, uh, he wrote a book one time called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. And he talked about the mortification of sin. Killing sin. And basically what he said in our language today, and it would take John Owens about three volumes to say what I'm going to say, but, uh, and I can't really make fun of him because when someone 300 years later still has, what, 40 volumes in print? But basically what he, he said was, you, either you kill sin or sin kills you. And the Spirit of God's within us. We still have, we're, we're still, we still have our wills. Now, this is all introduction to, to Jonah because here's a guy who was a believer, but he had a very strong will. Not only was he a believer, he was a prophet. 
Not only was he a prophet, he was a prophet that was given a specific message by God to deliver. And he didn't want to do it. Uh, the mind of man plans his way. Jonah had a plan for his life. Uh, even as a believer, even as someone that knew the Lord, even someone who had been used by the Lord, he had a plan. And when God laid out his plan for the, for the next quarter to, to Jonah, Jonah wasn't real hot on it. So what do we read in Jonah? And, and we're going to kind of helicopter this book. But we're going to see how the providence of God works, how the goodness of God works in our lives, quite frankly, even when we don't want him to work, even when as believers we're rebellious and we're out of line. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. You go in, and verse 2 is really interesting. He says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Uh, he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, and the, and the Assyrians were bad dudes. They, they were the worst of the worst. They, uh, this was a big city. It was a huge city. Take you three days to get around it, Jonah says. Uh, huge walls, um, qu quite a place, but an anti-God place. Um, Elliot Johnson, in, uh, in his commentary on Nahum, see if I can find this, he talks about Nineveh. And, and perhaps we get a little glimpse, because we can just write all over Jonah and say, oh, what's his problem, you know, the will of God? Why, why did not he just step in line? And, well, here's a little background. Nineveh was the capital of one of the cruelest, vilest, most powerful, and most idolatrous empires in the world. For example, writing of one of his conquests. Now, these names are tough. Asher Nasserpal II boasted, one of the kings of Assyria. I stormed the mountain peaks and took them. In the midst of the mighty mountain, I slaughtered them. Uh, with their blood, I dyed the mountain red like wool. The heads of the warriors I cut off, and I formed them into a pillar over against their city. Their young men and their maidens I burned in the fire. Regarding one captured leader, he wrote, I flayed him. His skin I spread across the wall of the city. He also wrote of mutilating the bodies of live captives, not dead captives, live captives, and stacking their corpses in piles. Shalmaneser II boasted of his cruelties after one of his campaigns. A pyramid of heads I reared in front of his city. Their youths and their maidens I burnt up in the flames. Sennacherib wrote of his enemies, I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. Like many waters of a storm, I made the contents of their gullets and entrails run down upon the wide earth. Their hands I cut off. Uh, God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. <laughs> he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Um, we, we'll talk about sometimes at missions conference, we'll talk about closed countries. This was a closed country. Uh, God said, go to that closed country. Like what John Piper says, he, he, he says, you know, really, um, 
He said, there's really no problem with going to a closed country as long as you're willing to die. So what's the problem? You might lose your life. That's the problem. God's plan for Jonah, this believer, this prophet, I want you to go. Jonah didn't want to go. The mind of man plans his way. The Lord directs his steps. So check up. Check out verse 3. So Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went on to Joppa. Now, if we had a big map spread out, you would see that God says, go to Nineveh. He heads the exact opposite direction. Uh, He goes to Joppa. You can visit Joppa today. It's right there on the coast of Israel in the Mediterranean. Some interesting things happened at Joppa in the book of Acts later on. But he goes to uh, Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, as far away from uh, Nineveh as he could get, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now note verse 4. Note the power of God. And note the extent that God will go to in order to accomplish his plan in the life of an individual believer. Verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. And there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. What did Psalm 135 say? The Lord does whatever he pleases. And it mentioned specifically the seas and the deep. So here you see the power of God. Here you see the control of God. So suddenly this great wind and this great storm, God hurls down on the Mediterranean. Uh, Verse 5, Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. Captain approached him and said, How is it you were sleeping? Get up, call on your God. I mean, everybody else is calling on theirs. Why don't you call on yours? Perhaps your God, small g, will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, come let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Proverbs 16 says that every lot cast, remember that verse, 33, comes from the Lord. So you go to Vegas and throw the dice, God's already determined how it's coming up. Why? Because God runs everything. Our God, is above every, our God is above all gods. Our God is in absolute control. There is nothing out of the control of Almighty God. Nothing. Nothing. Now, right there, we're starting to calm down. The more I think about the greatness of God and the sovereignty of God and the power of God and the fact that God controls everything, you know what happens? My anxiety level goes down. So this week, what are you facing? This week, what's on your plate? This week, what is it you're not looking forward to? What is it this week that has potential for uh, bringing great pressure and uh, difficulty into your life? Everybody's got something in here. But if God is in absolute control, whatever it is that comes your way, you can face it because God's controlling it and bringing it into your life for a reason. So... They cast lots. Interestingly enough, 
Jonah's name comes up. Who was behind that? God. Um, this is great. Verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Oh, I sell vacuum cleaners. What's your occupation? Oh, I'm a prophet of God. I delivered the truth of the Most High God. I just happened to be running away from what he called me to do. Isn't that interesting? What's your occupation? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, God of heaven, catch this, who made the sea and the dry land, which we desperately wish we were on right now. See, the God I fear, the God I serve, is the God who made this sea and he made the dry land. The men became extremely frightened. And they said to him, how could you do this? Here are a bunch of pagans that have more brains than this prophet of God. Basically, they're saying, what are you, a moron? So you serve the God who made this ocean, who sent this storm, and you're running away. What is wrong with you? Isn't that interesting? Here are unbelievers that have more sense than the prophet that God's going to send to a great nation. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. you got to give Jonah credit. He was straight up with the guys. The men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the, uh, I, I'm sorry, I meant to go to 11. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. All right, now catch this. Great storm. Where did the great storm come from? From the God who controls all things. From the God who controls storms and controls all calamities. So Amos, book Amos, you know, in the Minor Prophets, right next to Andy. Some of you young guys have no clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> there used to be a TV show. If you're over 50, you know about Amos and Andy. You young guys, get a life. It's a great show. Amos 3, verse 6 says, Can a calamity come upon a city unless the Lord sends it? See, God runs storms. God runs everything. And these pagans acknowledge that. So what can we do to you, to make the sea become calm for us. Uh, see, even these guys understood, well, if this God that you serve could, break this, could make this storm, he can calm this storm down. And once again, they were right. He said, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, and I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. Now, they didn't want to do this. They didn't want to kill him. They were doing everything they could do. They're trying to row, and they're trying to get back to the land. Um, they, they ask the Lord. They call out to the Lord not to put Jonah's blood on them. They didn't want to kill him. But finally, they have no option. Fifteen. They picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Sort of like Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. Right? He's always, you notice in the scripture, he's always stilling the waters. Doesn't it say that in Psalm 23? Sure it does. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. 
See, Jonah didn't want to be led. But finally, when Jonah submitted and said, throw me in, I'm the problem, the waters were stilled. Isn't that interesting? 16, the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice the Lord and made vows. All right, now we're going to see here, we're going to see the providence of God and the power of God. Four times, God is going to providence a divine appointment in this book. Four times, he is going to provide. Four times, he's going to providence. Four times, he's going to uh, have something show up on time, something that he scheduled in order to accomplish his will, even in the life of a believer who doesn't want his will. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. Here's the first appointment, 17. And they throw Jonah in, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, we've heard this since we were kids. We fly, everybody knows this story. You just fly by it, you know. The fish. <clears throat> it's pretty wild. So here's this ship, little ships on the storm. It's all, you know, just... Air. And they're, they're deciding whether or not to throw this guy in, and all this is going on. And at the exact moment they throw Jonah in, this great fish is absolutely in the right place at the right time. If he had been a little late, Jonah would have drowned. But he wasn't late. He was on time. Exactly, precisely on time. And the problem, see, God runs the creation. So here's this great fish and he's in the right place at the right time. Jonah is thrown in, and that sucker is there by divine appointment, swallows him. That's the providence of God. Um, God, is, God is so big and God is so great that God is in charge of all events that occur in our lives. Nothing is out of his control. Now, Jonah's in this uh, stomach of this fish for three days and three nights. And, and suddenly, Jonah is open to the Lord. And, and suddenly, he is um, connected to the Lord. Isn't that interesting in our lives? We know the Lord, what he's done for us, who he is, his greatness. But I'll tell you what, we still got strong wills, don't we? You ever just get hacked off? Because it's not going quite the way you want it to go? I'll be honest with you, I got a little hacked off last night. I really did. Because about three things yesterday, I had two things, two things, one happened in the morning, one happened in the afternoon. And then last night, my son John came about 10.30 and was mentioning something that was pretty small, but it was just... There's this book out now called The Tipping Point. It's, it's just, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. And John told me something, and you know what, it just kind of hacked me off. And I was on my way to bed anyway. And so we talked for a while, and I just, you know, okay, I went to bed. And I thought, you know, this is pretty stupid, me being hacked off about this. Because God's in control of all things. 
Why, why am I hacked off? Because in three different instances today, a certain outcome that I wanted to see right about now, in all three situations, it isn't happening now. But I got to get some sleep because I got a full day tomorrow and I got to teach tomorrow night on the plan of God and the power of God. That's stupid. I mean, is that not stupid? I had to kind of get a hold of myself and preach to myself before I went to bed. Verse 2, he says, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, from the, from the place of the dead, actually. You heard my voice. Uh, this, I mean, for three days. Look at verse 5. Uh, water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. But he didn't die, did he? Why not? Because it wasn't his time to die. It was his time to learn a lesson, but he wasn't, it wasn't his time to die. Is it not amazing that we're all alive in this room when you look back over your life? It's amazing that we were all alive at 18. Because did you not get your driver's license about 16? How many of you guys can remember between 16 and 18? <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? How many of you can just say yes? Uh huh. Yeah, I remember. I remember so well. 105 miles an hour. Going down Bayshore Freeway, just below Candlestick Park in San Francisco, with my buddy Doug Idiot, I think was his last name. I can't remember. <laughs> 105 miles an hour. Unbelievable. I remember heading for that fence, and suddenly we were by it. It, it was. That's the hand of God. See, it wasn't time yet. This guy's learning his lesson. The, now catch this. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. He did not want to go to the place that God had ordained for him. So God puts him in a very difficult place where he learns to submit. Where men were leaders. You know, maybe you go to leadership conferences, you read leadership books. Here's a principle about leadership. Great leaders are great submitters. That's a Christian principle. Great Christian leaders are great submitters. You learn to submit to the Lord. You learn to submit to God. Not my will, but thine be done. A.W. Tozer used to say that the great work of prayer the hard work of prayer is this, is getting, when you're praying, is getting yourself into a state of mind when you pray so that you prefer the will of God. That's tough stuff. Because we know what we'd like and we know what we want and we know what we desire, but where we would prefer the will of God. Hmm. He's repentant. He's compliant, uh, acknowledges his sin. And in verse 10, this fish, uh, who's had acid reflux for about three days, 
Now, this is, I love this. This is just great. Then the Lord commanded the fish. Here's this fish, just cruise, I mean, just living his life. He's a fish. But you see the providence of God. So God commands the fish to show up at the right place, GPS, on time, on schedule. And then at the exact time, when the lesson's been learned and it's time to move on, the Lord commands the fish, and it vomited Jonah up on dry land. Chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. He says, all right, let's do this again. Take two. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So he goes, he, he, shows, he gets up, he starts heading 550 miles to Nineveh. You look in verse 3, Nineveh was an exceeding great city, a three days walk, a huge city. Jonah began to prophesy in verse 4. He says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now look at verse 5. This is wild. Here are these pagans, anti-God, anti-everything. This guy, he shows up, he preaches. Verse 5, then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his rope from him, covered himself with a sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. This is a, this is a pagan king talking here. I mean, he'd flayed people. He'd skinned people. Verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Verse 10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Once again, the providence of God. And, here, and some people get all hung up. Oh, wait a minute, why do, you know, then why do we pray? If all things are set, then why do we pray? Because Jesus said, when you pray. He didn't say, if you pray, did he? Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. We pray because we're commanded to pray. We don't know what God has sketched out. We don't know what his plan is. So we pray because we need him. He, he designed situations so that we need him. And then some people say, well, if God, if, if God has planned all things and God's in control of all things, well, then why pray? Because, it's our, because God has chosen to use prayer in his plan. Now, can we explain that? No. But he is, he's chosen. And then some of the open theist guys, the guys who say that God doesn't know the future, which is, which is an old heresy actually uh, disguised Sassinianism, which is Unitarianism, which is tied up with Pelagianism, There'll be a quiz on this later, by the way. But the new guys today, open theists, God doesn't know the future because you haven't made the choice yet. Okay, right. Well, he knew you were going to be an idiot before you were an idiot, obviously. <laughs> and they said, well, you, you haven't made a personal choice. Well, he said to Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. And did Peter not do that? Of course God knows your personal. He knows everything. 
And, and, it, and it says here that, you know, the Lord relented concerning the calamity. It, you have situations in the scriptures, God changed his mind. Well, wait a minute. Well, how could God change? Well, well, then he really didn't have a plan. No, he did have a plan. Well, it says he changed his mind. Well, let me ask you something. Did God know before the foundations of the world that he was going to change his mind before he changed his mind? Did he? Then he didn't change his mind. That's an anthropomorphism. It's God speaking about himself in human terms so that we can understand. Anthropos, man, morphe, form. When it says the Lord changed his mind, that's what we do. He is speaking of himself in a way that we can understand. God knew what was going to happen. He knew that prayer, I'm going to send this, but people are going to pray, and I'm going to respond to their prayers. He knew all that. He wasn't shocked by that. Gosh, that king repented. So what do we do now? I said I was going to do this. Gosh. Well, let's pull out plan B. There is no plan B. He knows what he's doing. But he wants us to pray. He wants us to come to him. God puts us in situations that we go to him. And if I had a professor. Uh, my first year at Western Seminary. And I'll never forget this. Um, he told a story about when he and his wife got married... Someone had given them uh, what they call an empty book. I'd never heard of such a thing. But a hardback, bound book, very nice. And you open the pages, and it's empty. There's nothing. And you could put whatever you wanted. You know, some people journal, diary. You know what they decided to do? They decided to make that their prayer book. And so he and his wife, first year they were married, they would take that book... And they would, put, they, they would put a line down the middle of each page. And uh, so, you know, they, all right, here's what we're going to do. So they took the first page, and what are the things we're praying? What's our, what, are, what, are, what are our prayer requests? Put a line down the middle of the page, first page of the empty book. And on the left side, they'd write out their prayer request, and they'd write the date. And then, whenever God would answer a prayer, on the right side of the page, they would record how God answered, and the date when he answered. Uh, so they filled the page, and then they had to go to the next page, and went to the next page, and they got to the third page, and there were some still gaps on page one. But then they kept going, and they kept going. And when he told that story, when Dr. Jones told that story, and I'm doing this from memory, and I may not have it right, but I'm close. I believe, Dr. I'm going to give you the conservative number. I think he said 15. But I'm going to say that he said we've been married 40 years, and we have 12 volumes of empty books that we turn into prayer books that are on our shelf. We have 12 volumes of answered prayer that are on the shelf in our living room. And whenever we're in a situation as a family and we're wondering if God, we just look up at the shelf. And we have 12 volumes of answered prayer. Jesus said, when you pray. So we pray. And once again, because he's in control, hey, if God's not in control, you don't pray. Why would you pray to a God who's not in absolute control? Right? You'd be crazy. Why waste your time? Why waste your breath? But he is in absolute control. So you pray. Okay. You guys still with me? Yeah. All right. So these guys repent. Now this is great. 
And so what Jonah did, Jonah rented some TV time and he did a TV special and talked about how God worked through his ministry in Nineveh. And then asked people to sow seed into his ministry and it was, it was great. And he bought a jet. It, it was really neat. That's not what he did. That's what a lot of guys today would do. That's not what Jonah did. Jonah had a really interesting response to this city repenting and throwing themselves down on the mercy of God. Note chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Here's a real spirit-filled guy for you. Here's a guy really walking close to the Lord. All these people repent and come to the Lord, and he gets hacked off. And he has the gall to pray to the Lord about it. This guy is about as stupid as I am. Look at this, verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Did I not tell you this is what would happen? Therefore, in order to forestall this, this repentance, this bowing before your name, this is why I went to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. I, I knew you were this way. What is with this guy? This guy needs to go see Minneth and Meyer. Are they still around? Well, they are. Not together, but they're still around. Because I need to see them this week, David, by the way. I need to go in and sit down with them. Now, catch this. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. What is the calamity that's happened in this guy's life? All of these pagans have come to know the Lord. Do you get this? I don't get it. You know what, you know what this tells me? That uh, This tells me that we all are susceptible to incredible blind spots in our lives. There are things that other people see in your life. There are things your wife sees. There are things that friends see in your life and in my life that we absolutely don't see. Is it Psalm 19? David asked the Lord to forgive him of presumptuous sins, of hidden sins. We all have them. We all have blind spots. I mean, this, this guy is out of his mind. And sometimes, so are we. Who, who, who is this guy addressing? He's addressing the sovereign God. He's addressing the, uh, the God who's in charge. Uh, the God, he's upset at God for ministering to these people. Now, this is really interesting. Verse 4, the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? And the answer is no, but he thinks that he does. So then let's ask this question. What is it that we have in our lives? And see, we're pretty slick and we're pretty smart. What is it do you have in your life that down deep you're a little bit angry with God about? You know what's interesting to me? 
We've talked about depression before in here. There is a correlation between depression and anger. A lot of times when someone's depressed, and I'm not talking about physiological reasons here, a lot of times people are depressed because you can identify a loss that happened in their life. You know, loss of health or loss of a spouse, um, rebellious child, I mean, loss. But oftentimes, that depression is a symptom of, um, of stuffed anger over the loss. Anger, anger at who? At whom? At the one who's in control of everything. And this is why Joseph was such an interesting guy. When he faced off with his brothers and said, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. You don't see any anger. You don't see any bitterness. You know what you see? You see him bowing to the sovereign one. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. And you know what? God's good and God does good. You don't have a cotton-picking reason in your life to be angry at him, and neither do I. So then what was my problem last night? See, here I am last night. I'm just like Jonah. Only nobody knew about it. You know? Mary said, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine. Lying through my teeth. Oh, yeah, I'm good. She knows that. She can read me like a book. She knew, she knew I wasn't good. So what's the matter? Oh, I'm just kind of hacked off at God because these three things didn't work out today. I was hoping they would, and they haven't. I don't understand this. I'm getting a little um, vexed. <laughs> All right, now verse 5. We're, we're winding up. We, God appointed. We had one appointment that God providence. We're going to see three in a row now. Catch this. Jonah went out from the city and set east of it. He's checking out the city. There he made a shelter for himself and set under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God, here's number two appointment. Here's number two providence. So the Lord God appointed a plant. And it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. Even in his stupidity, you still see the goodness of God to this guy. Even in his still rebellion, you, th- you would have thought the guy would have learned the lesson in the belly of the fish. But he's still got some anger issues. Now, keep your finger there and flip over to Psalm 103. You know, I really like, you know, I'd like to be hard on this guy. But, but I got to tell you what, I got this Jonah symptom in my life. And you know what? So do you guys. We all do. We just don't let it out at church. We're too smart. We know how to play the game. We know how to walk in here and praise God and hallelujah, everybody. And you can still be angry at him. Uh, uh, look at how good, look at how good the Lord is here. Uh, verse 10, actually pick up eight. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. Here's, here's Jonah looking out the city, and it's hot, you know, 
And God causes his, God appoints this plant to grow up over his head and give him shade. And he's in rebellion. The Lord's compassion and gracious, slow to anger. We're quick to anger. God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Jump down to 10. He's not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Did, did he reward uh, Jonah here according to his sin? No. All right, so this guy is stewing, he's upset, he's angry, and, and it's hot. So God causes this plant to grow up and cover him with shade. Now, this is really interesting. Uh, God appointed the plant, it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. He's extremely happy about the plant and extremely upset at God for delivering these people. Now, there's another lesson to be learned. So here comes another providence, another appointment. Verse 7. But God appointed a worm. There's just something right about this. God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. Verse 8. Here comes another providence. Here comes another appointment. By the way, God controls fish. God controls wind. God controls worms. God can, he controls it all. Eight, when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Here comes a lesson. God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? See, we often look at the providence of God and the sovereignty of God, and we say, well, that's not fair. That's not right. That's not... You know what? It is right. He's a compassionate God. He's a good God. Let me read you a shot from C.H. Spurgeon. Spurgeon says this in regard to Jonah. The great wheels of providence are continually revolving in fulfillment of God's purposes concerning his own people. For them... Winds blow and tempests rise. It is a wonderful thing that the whole machinery of nature should be made subservient to the divine purpose of the salvation of his redeemed. Spurgeon says, I was in a diamond-cutting factory at Amsterdam, and I noticed that there were huge wheels revolving and a great deal of power being developed and expended. But when I came to look at the little diamond, in some cases a very small one indeed, upon which that power was being brought to bear. It seemed very remarkable that all that power could be concentrated upon such a little yet very precious object. In a similar style, all the wheels of providence in nature, great as they are, are brought to bear by divine skill and love upon a thing which appears to many people to be of trifling value, but which is to Christ of priceless worth, namely... A human soul. 
the wheels of providence spin to show the compassion of God to us. I'll close with this. I was reading this week a biography of uh, Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards, at one point, wrote a biography of David Brainerd, a young missionary to the Indians. Now, this is in the 1740s that Brainerd died. And, uh, you know, uh, Edwards was the greatest theologian and and, uh, philosopher America ever produced. Giant of a man. Knew God. Um, David Brainerd was a young man who was a missionary to the Indians. Now, this is in Massachusetts. He's there year-round. He's there in the winter. He has uh, pneumonia. And he's trying to reach, he was trying to reach a particular tribe, the Mohawks, which were, which were a part of the Iroquois. And they were very, very violent. They were, they were just, they, they were dangerous people. And as he was moving to this new tribe, as Brainerd was, and he was sick and he was coughing up blood. He fell off his horse. And he was just there in, in the wilderness. And he, as he's coughing, he's crying out to God for mercy. And he's asking God to give him strength so that he can go preach the gospel to these Indians. What he doesn't know is some of these Indian warriors are in the bush watching him. They can't understand what he's saying. But they're watching this man coughing blood and crying out. And this one warrior pulls out an arrow and sets it up on his bow, and he's just going to take him out. And just as he's getting ready to pull that bowstring, a rattler comes out from under a rock and starts making his way to Brainerd, and Brainerd never sees him. And this rattler then poises to strike, and the Indian backs off because he's going to let the rattler do it. And as that rattler is getting ready to strike this young missionary, suddenly the rattler just lowers himself and starts to move away. The Indian's never seen that. He goes to pull out his bullet, his, his arrow again. Here comes the rattler again. He can't believe this. Rattler poises to strike. Brainerd doesn't seem. Just as he's getting ready to strike, the rattler lowers himself and begins to make his way away from the missionary. Astonishing. Reaches again for the boat. Here comes the rattler. This time he knows the rattler's going to strike. He's ne- never seen a rattler not strike the first time. Third time, the rattler's going to strike. Rather makes his way over. Brainerd doesn't seem. Rears up his head to strike. Lowers his head and disappears into the brush. And those Indians look at each other and said, who is this man? And what God does he serve? And within weeks, Brainerd had led that entire tribe to Christ. Um, Brainerd died at 30. He didn't tell the story to Jonathan Edwards. You know who told the story to Edwards? The warrior that was pulling out the arrow. In the providence of God. See, God runs worms. God runs plants. God runs storms. God runs fish. God runs snakes. 
and the wheels of providence turned for individual souls that they might see the goodness and compassion of Almighty God. He's a good God. We bow before you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you for your greatness. We thank you that you are in charge, that you're in absolute control. Even in our foolishness and stupidity at times, after we know you, when we know your word, we, we struggle. We, we want to go our way. We want things on our schedule, on our time frame. Lord, we, we've all been there, and some of us are there right now. Right now we're there. So, Lord, what we do is we bow and we yield. And we thank you that you work even when we don't understand why you are delaying. We submit to you. We bow before you. We honor you. And we tell you we do not know what's best. We tell you we have all kinds of blind spots in our lives. So would you make us teachable? And would you help us to grow? We, we can't grow without you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.